everyone, my name is Ian McLaughlin and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania and I'm on the board of the Penn Science Policy Group and today I'm joined by Enrique Lin Shao. I'm a PhD candidate in biochemistry and biophysics here at Penn. Thanks for having me here today, Ian. Uh, I'm also the founder and chair of the Penn Science Diplomacy Group here at Penn. Right, and so I'm on the Penn Science Policy Group and you are in the Penn Science Diplomacy Group. So Enrique, why don't you give us a, a primer on what science diplomacy is? So science diplomacy as a term is very novel and it's, it's only become popular in recent years. But as a concept, it's been around for a long time. It actually encompasses three different parts. Diplomacy for science, uh, science for diplomacy, and science in diplomacy. Diplomacy for science is when diplomats get together to discuss how to bring science forward and how to regulate science and technology. And that can go anywhere from funding and foreign policy. For example, how can we establish international scientific collaborations? What are the regulations behind the International Space Station, the Global Seed Vault? Or also, how can we regulate carbon emissions and genetic engineering research? Science for diplomacy is more the more traditional one, where scientists keep the conversation and negotiation going when political relations are strained or blocked or non-existent. And a traditional example for that is the Cold War, where the Soviet Union and the U.S. maintained uh, maintained diplomatic relations through scientific collaborations. And I think uh, a very famous example of that or something that illustrates that very well is a handshake that happened in 1975 between an astronaut from the U.S. and an astronaut from the Soviet Union and in the International Space Station, which is pretty cool. Right. So our political leaders couldn't shake hands, but <laughs> we literally had to go to space <laughs> to have pretty much, yeah. American shake the hand of a Russian. <laughs> and we needed scientists to do that as well. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And well, the last one is science and diplomacy, where scientists provide high-level scientific advice to decision makers and policymakers. And I think a, a very current example for that is the Iran nuclear deal, where Energy Secretary Dr. Ernest Moniz, who is a nuclear physicist from MIT, was very crucial for the deal. Yeah, there, there's sort of an interesting story there, right? And so Ernest Moniz, atomic physicist at um, or nuclear physicist at uh, MIT, collaborated with uh, his counterpart uh, Ali Akbar Salehi who leads Iran's Atomic Energy Organization. They're both sort of MIT folks. So Ernest Moniz was teaching at MIT while uh, Dr. Salehi was uh, a student at MIT. Yeah, and the nuclear understanding that both have was crucial to get to the details of this agreement in terms of how much uh, uranium could be used. Right, like, like how, how to sort of effectively ensure that the uranium is being used for energy purposes as opposed to the development of, of nuclear weapons. Exactly. Right. And so kind of similarly to that, um, although obviously not the same, I think there's another example, right, in the Middle East of sort of collaborations in, in physics. Yeah, there's this really cool example. It's the Sesame Particle Accelerator, which has been in the making for the past 20 years in a very unexpected place. Uh, it's the first particle accelerator in the Middle East, and it's being built in Amman, Jordan. And there's all these different governments that have come together to be able to have this project happen. So Israel, Iran, the Palestinian Authority, Turkey, the Republic of Cyprus, as well as Jordan, Bahrain, Egypt, and Pakistan have all come together in this massive project. And it's it's interesting. I mean, some of the conflicts like is Israel and the Palestinian Authority are known, but some other conflicts, for example, Turkey does not formally recognize the Republic of Cyprus. And they're still all working together for this scientific pursuit. 
there's also this um, very interesting or a quote that I like a lot from Roy Beck of Tel Aviv University, who sits on the Sesame Users Committee. And it is, we all talk the same language, we all talk science. And that represents pretty well what science diplomacy is. Yeah, so, so the, the message is we need more scientists in our government. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, very cool. All right. And so um, why don't we step back a little bit and say and, and, and explore how it is that you got involved in science diplomacy? So for me, uh, I was always very interested in both science as well as international affairs. Um, I'm the son of immigrants from Taiwan who moved to Costa Rica when they were very young. And then I went to German high school and ended up doing my undergrad in Germany, pursuing a science degree in Germany, mm. then moving to the UK to do research in Cambridge and Scotland. And then I moved here to the US. So I've been exposed to science in different countries. And that's been like my entryway into science diplomacy. Also, through some of my science, I was interviewed for a Costa Rican newspaper in 2014. And after that, the ambassador of Costa Rica, Dr. Roman Macaya Hayes, who himself has a PhD in biochemistry, contacted me and, uh, to explore possibilities of collaboration between UPenn and universities in Costa Rica. And that, and then he talked to me about science diplomacy, and that was the first time I heard about it. Oh, very cool. And I, and I know for our upcoming uh, uh, symposium, right, Science Policy and Science Diplomacy Symposium, he's going to be actually joining us. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. He's come to Penn a few times. And we actually uh, formally signed an agreement in November to allow collaborations between the Ministry of Health in Costa Rica as well as universities here, including Penn, to uh, start sending researchers back and forth as well as to share re uh, science resources. Ah, very cool. Okay. And so how did the uh, Penn Science Diplomacy Group start? So after I heard about science diplomacy from uh, Dr. Roman Macaya, mm -hmm. I was very interested in the concept and trying to see if other people within Penn were interested. So I sent this email out to all of the students in the biomedical um, biomedical program, which are about 400 students, just saying like, are you interested in how science uh, can be used outside of the bench, how your skills can be used for foreign policy. And a bunch of people came to our first meeting uh, that it was like about 40 people came. They were very interested in the concept. And we started thinking about how can we make this into a thing here at Penn because there's clearly a hole and people are, are interested in this subject. And believe it or not, I get a lot of inspiration from Twitter as well by following the hashtag science diplomacy. That's how I got to meet Marga Gual, who works at IIIS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Marga herself has a PhD and it's been really interesting to talk to her about science diplomacy and learn about the mission of IIIS around science diplomacy. We also had the opportunity to go to IIIS last year for their science diplomacy conference. And it was a great opportunity for members of our group to learn about active projects going on between IIIS and Cuba and other countries, and also to understand much better what science diplomacy is. We are also going back uh, in March, so we're very excited about that. And we'll be presenting some posters there about our work. And do, do you have a, a concept of like, what proportion of researchers here at Penn or, or at you know this sort of university level in general are immigrants? So I don't actually have those numbers, but having interacted with different labs here at Penn and through different collaborations, I've been able to see that there's a lot of immigrants from China, India, Brazil, uh, Mexico, so from a lot of different parts of the world, Germany, 
Costa Rica. Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's really exciting. It's a very international environment, I would say. And I also believe that international students and immigrants are science diplomats by default. They come to a lab, they and they don't only bring their expertise, but they bring a lot of their customs, a lot of things that they've learned in their countries. So they offer a view uh, and a perspective of those countries that a lot of people here in the U.S. wouldn't be exposed to it otherwise. Yeah, like one of the coolest things. So we have um, uh, my own lab is, is pretty international. I mean, I, I work actually from for somebody who's from Italy, um, uh, Mariela De Biasi. And um, but, you know, we have a postdoc from India, from southern India, which has awesome food. And then we have a postdoc from uh, Greece. And so they will bring in like what they cook for dinner every now and then. Uh, so that that. Well, it's not necessarily science diplomacy. It's certainly a form of diplomacy, right? Okay, and then so so you had a, a, a nice reception, right, when you introduced the concept of Penn Sci- or the Penn Science Diplomacy Group. And so, how is it? How how does the group enable uh, members to sort of get exposed to this kind of activity? So we have different ways to do that. Uh, one of them is bringing guest speakers, and we've brought several different guest speakers throughout uh, the whole process. We started in 2015, and since then we've had about 10 different guest speakers, including. Uh, Roman Macaya, the ambassador of Costa Rica, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I've mentioned several times. But also we had uh, Anna Jala, the director of the Center for Global Health from Georgetown. She came during the Zika epidemic to talk about how governments were working together with scientists throughout Latin America mm. to prevent the spread of Zika to other countries. And some other of the speakers that we had include the former president of CRDF Global, Kathy Campbell, who came to talk about how CRDF Global was involved a lot uh, with Soviet, with the Soviet Union, trying to establish science collaborations during that time. And so, just so we're all on the same page, CRDF Global um, was a nonprofit um, that was basically established in 1992 uh, by the U.S. Congress uh, under what they called the Freedom Support Act, um, and ultimately was established in uh, 95 uh, by the National Science Foundation or NSF. And so, the whole sort of goal here is to promote. Um, collaboration, international interactions um, through the use of sort of like uh, grants and, and you know, resources for, for science and training. Um, and so that was a pretty good get, Enrique. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited. And she's also coming back for a symposium in April 24th together with the ambassador and some other really exciting guests that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, like, like we have somebody from, uh, I think, the, uh, the Center for Science and Democracy, um, uh, which is a part of the Union of Concerned Scientists, right? Michael Halp- Halpern, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm looking forward to this symposium. It looks like it's going to be pretty cool. Okay, and then so is the Penn Science uh, Diplomacy Group open to undergrads, graduate students, postdocs, everybody? So it's actually open to all. We started a very graduate student heavy, since I myself am a graduate student, and right. that's uh, the pool which I started with. But we've gotten a lot of undergrads as well who are very interested in the subject and want to learn more about it. And they've come to a lot of our guest uh, guest talks as well as some of our case studies. Yeah, you know, that, that was sort of my, my experience too with uh, Penn Science Policy Group was that, you know, we started out, we, we were basically, our home was the biomedical graduate school, right? Um, and pretty much all of our membership were, you know, people in various sort of domains of biomed. But in the past, like, I don't know, year, it seems like people from all over the school are becoming interested in, in science uh, policy. And so, like, we have people like engineers, chemists, um, you know, obviously still pretty science-focused. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're potentially going to start developing relationships with the law school. And so, yeah, it seems like uh, 
are uh, the these topics are sort of becoming a little bit more interesting to people. And so, um, what kind of projects do you guys uh, do? So yeah, a, a big part of what we do is projects because we are not only interested in exposing the people to what science diplomacy is, but also to find ways to actively engage in science diplomacy. And we have uh, about five projects that we have active right now. One of them is a project in collaboration with the Consulate of Lithuania. And that project, um, it started because we sent a lot of emails to different consulates in Philadelphia, trying to see if there were possibilities of um, trying to collaborate in scientific exchange and see if there were any needs in terms of scientific priorities for different consulates. And the Embassy of Lithuania contacted us because they were they're very, very worried about um, they have the highest suicide rate in the world. And they wanted to get like an outside perspective to understand what is happening, why do they have such a high suicide rate, and how have other countries within the region been able to work to lower those incidences. Some of the other projects that we have, we have a project with uh, where we're trying to study different Latin, uh, different policies in nutrition in Latin America, including sugar taxation and food labeling, to try to understand how policies are made, but also to understand if policies contribute to improvements in health within the different countries. And we've looked at a lot of different countries like Mexico, Chile, Costa Rica, trying to see uh, how, for example, sugar, sugar taxations of sodas have contributed to that process of lowering diabetes and chronic diseases mm. to try to see if at the end of that we can come out with some kind of document that we can give policymakers in Latin America for them to use as a guide for their new policies. And so when you say sugar tax, do you mean sugar tax in the U.S. or in those uh, Latin American countries? So sugar taxation in those Latin American countries, mm. uh, even though in the U.S. it's starting to become more of a hype and it's starting to uh, develop in different cities like we've seen in Philadelphia, the right. sugar taxation. Um, in Mexico, it's been around for over two years now, and it's been interesting to see how uh, that has contributed to lowering the consumption of sodas, but also to um, getting taxes to put water fountains in schools and other places. Mm, so using that tax revenue for mm -hmm. other projects. Oh, cool. And it might be a little bit too early to know if sugar taxation is a uh, a good way to lower those incidences of chronic diseases, but only time will tell for that. Sure, yeah. And then another project that we are very interested in is uh, Cuba Scientist and Medical Exchange Program that we're trying to establish between the University of Pennsylvania and universities in Cuba. Cuba and the U.S. just reestablished their diplomatic relations um, about a year ago, and that was after a long process that included a lot of science diplomacy. In fact, scientists in both countries have studied and shared, uh, studied shared biodiversity and public health research since 2009. And in 2014, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Cuban Academy of Science, Sciences, signed a collaboration contract that was sort of the beginning of this whole process that uh, ended up in a formal reestablishment of diplomatic relations in July of 2015. So the idea for this project is to be able to both bring scientists from Cuba here uh, to to be able for them to kind of expand on the projects that they're working on. In, and we already established a contact with one of the scientists in Cuba that we're very interested in bringing someone from his lab over to Penn. His name is Sergio Perea, and he's been working on this novel peptide that has shown very promising results in uh, cancer studies. And they've, uh, they've 
taken it through some clinical trials, and we would be very excited to characterize a little bit more the molecular mechanisms behind this peptide. And then uh, on the other side, we would be very interested in sending students from Penn to Cuba because we believe there is a lot to be learned in Cuba about how to do science in lower research settings, as well as how to practice medicine with lower resources. Cuba has uh, found very novel, has done very innovative research. For example, the peptide I mentioned, as well as a novel lung cancer vaccine, which has been tested in the US uh, since the reestablishment of the diplomatic relations. Also, Cuba has a really good public health system and they've, they've been able to bring the HIV um, infection from mothers to children to almost zero, which is one of the very few countries that have been able to do that in the world. And then we also have a project uh, in collaboration with Friends in Health, through which a member of our group was able to travel to North Korea to present in a medical conference. And we're very interested in trying to understand what our public health priorities in North Korea, and if there's any way we could be able to collaborate in that space. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> you have like, was this a PhD student or? So this was actually one of our undergraduate students. Wow, are you serious? That's interesting. And so, um, is, is, was she, does she have a background in North Korea or? Uh, she's actually Korean-American, which uh. facilitated a little bit the whole process. Um, but this was the first time she went and she's going again in a few months. Oh, how cool. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. And then one of our most, most new projects is a collaboration with Philippines, uh, and specifically the organization ISIP, Integrating Science in the Philippines, which tries to promote science in the youth uh, by exposing youth to science through very easy experiments like extracting DNA from strawberries, as well as other kind of activities like youth hack, teaching youth in the Philippines about programming and coding. And it's very interesting because we've talked a lot to them about sharing protocols to do this, since there's a lot of organizations here around Penn that are trying to expose underserved communities in Philadelphia to science as well. And it's it's been really interesting to see how the challenges that we face in both places are very similar. So those are some of the projects that we are actively working on right now. We're starting to try to expand to new projects with other in other fields, for example, we have been contacted by people working in the ROC, trying to understand if there's uh, easy ways to filter salt from water because of the high, the problems that they have there to access um, drinkable water. And so, you know, for ev so everybody's on the same page. The ROC or the ROC um, is a lake basically between Uzbekistan and uh, Kazakhstan. Um, and it was one of the four largest lakes in the world. Um, and ever since the 1960s, it's been shrinking. And uh, in 2007, it had um, declined to 10% of what it used to be. Um, so that's a, a pretty striking comparisons. Like if you check out uh, the Wikipedia, they have a great picture where it you know, puts basically a picture of the ROC in 1989 next to uh, what it looked like in 2014. And it's pretty, pretty uh, striking. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, it's pretty crazy what's happening in the RLC, and you can see why they have these challenges to obtain drinkable water. But it, it also shows uh, why we need to expand to other fields and try to recruit people from other fields outside, outside of biomedical, because we're very interested in trying to be able to 
bring science diplomacy outside of that, also working with engineers, working in other science fields. Okay, and so after you know the, the members of, of the diplomacy group get all this cool exposure and get to work on all these projects, what is there like a career in science diplomacy that, that somebody can have or? So that's a great question. Uh, so I've been to a lot of meetings uh, involving science diplomacy and what I've learned from all of this is that there's no clear cut path for science diplomats. There's ambassadors, there's researchers, there's professors that are science diplomats, but there's not not just one way you can follow to become a science diplomat. In fact, uh, it's very interesting to listen to how people became science diplomats. A lot of people, like the ambassador of Costa Rica, he got his PhD in biochemistry and he went back to work in Costa Rica, trying to promote clinical trials in Costa Rica and then one day decided that he wanted to do more of a change. So he became a presidential candidate. And after that, he was sent back to the U.S. as an ambassador. So mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. Like now he's here in the U.S. and he's able to establish new collaborations between uh, universities here in Costa Rica, trying to promote science diplomacy. But he did not really plan to get to this point. So people are they're basically... They're scientists first, and then there are sort of opportunities for these international interactions that then mm -hmm. present themselves, and then they sort of become <laughs> science diplomats. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that come to the science diplomacy group, what they want is to understand how the skills that they're getting at the lab, at the bench, how all those analytical skills could be used outside of the bench. And they n do not necessarily all want to be science diplomats or work in diplomacy, but they do find that interesting that aspect very interesting. Okay, gotcha. And so um, so for, for students who are had their sort of heart set on getting involved in diplomacy, are there any sort of opportunities that they could pursue? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of different opportunities uh, for people who know they want to work in policy or diplomacy. And some of them are like the known science policy fellowships like AAAS, American Chemical Society, the Biophysics Society, which sponsor fellowships for over a year where you can go work for example, the State Department, if you're interested in diplomacy, and be able to be exposed to that, the diplomacy aspect, as well as working in government and how the things that they've learned during their PhD can apply to different real life problems and challenges. And, and aside of that, there's some other fellowships that people can apply to, like the Christine Mirsayan. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know. <laughs> as well as the Presidential Management Fellowship. And then there's a lot of NGOs and organizations where people who, scientists who are interested in policy and diplomacy can get an early start. For example, well, the known World Health Organization, mm. but also less known uh, CRDF Global, the also the Developmental Bank, mm. the Development Bank. Okay, and so um, for you know people who are motivated to, to pursue these, these opportunities, do you have any advice for them? So I think my number one advice would be to start early go to meetings, meet people in the field, start building a network of people you would like to work with in the future. Just, uh, I mean, still do your PhD and do your science, but at the same time, find ways to expose yourself to other kinds of people, other fields, to try to understand if you are actually interested in those. And, and if you're a student at Penn, join the science diplomacy group, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. Okay, and so, you know, we're both fortunate to be at a large institution like the University of Pennsylvania. And so does the institution itself have a role in the science diplomacy group? So, yeah, as you said, we're very privileged to be in a large institution. And we're also privileged to be located in 
the middle of the Northeast Corridor between very big cities, New York and D.C., and cities that are more traditionally associated with diplomacy. At the same time, um, the Pair World House just opened, which is a global policy research center here at Penn, and we're very excited about that. And also, uh, very recent news, ex-Vice President Joe Biden is coming to UPenn, and he's going to open a center for diplomacy that is going to be based in the sea, but it's going to be accessible for students at Penn. So I think UPenn has both components. It has great science, as well as it's starting to have a great diplomacy center. And what we need now is to kind of bring those together and start a more a more like strong science diplomacy field here. You can see it in other universities like NYU, uh, Tufts, universities in Boston that are starting to develop curricula for science diplomacy as well as degrees around science diplomacy. And I think um, Penn is still lagging a little bit, but... Oh, snap. <laughs> Throw a little shade, Enrique. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, it's it's also a great opportunity for our university to be up there with all of those universities and start a program, start training people for the new generation of science diplomats. Cool. Well, um, thanks so much for talking to us about uh, science diplomacy. Thanks um, for having me. No, yeah, it's it a pleasure. And, you know, it, it might sound like we're part of different groups, but we actually do work together a fair amount. And something that we're collaborating on this year for the first time is going to be the sort of joint symposium for the science diplomacy and science policy groups. Um, and so if you are at Penn, you should definitely come if you're interested in these subjects. It's going to be on April 24th. Um, in Houston Hall. <laughs> um, and we have some pretty cool uh, guest speakers, including, as we talked about, um, the ambassador uh, from Costa Rica. Um, but we also have um, uh, Kathy Campbell, who is the former um, president of CRDF Global, which we talked about. And we're going to have um, sort of workshops and talks on communicating science on social media. We're going to have Michael Halpern, who's the deputy director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of cool people, somebody from the Office of uh, Sustainability here um, in Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. Um, and so it's going to be pretty cool. Um, there's going to be food. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of interesting people. So uh, come check it out and come interact with us. Um, and so if people want to find out more about uh, the Penn Science Diplomacy Group, what should they do, Enrique? Mm -hmm. So they can find us on Twitter under the handle PennSciDip. Also, our website is pensideep.org, and you can also find us on Facebook, Pensai, uh, the Penn Science Diplomacy Group. You can also send an email to info at pensideep.org. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Enrique, and uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening.